G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. And we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We don't ask for much in return, but we would be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast or Spotify, wherever you're actually getting this podcast, and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, um, but we really appreciate a couple of moments of your time to uh, to go and do that. So, with all the uh, the current lockdown that's uh, that's happening at the at the moment, so there is there there still is a studio, but uh, Brian and myself are, are not there. But instead, we're um, we're remotely joined by Rosie Alistair, um, who is going to talk to us a, a bit about um, vet life and and other things. So, thank you, Rosie, for for joining us today. No problem. And, and Rosie, I, I asked you before when the, when the mics were closed, they can still be closed, so that's good. Um, about your your um, your roles at the at the moment. So, so your your main role because when we spoke to you last year, um, you were uh, still at, at doing finishing off your your PhD in Edinburgh, and now you're you're kind of more focused on on vet life, or at least that's your 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 primary role. But you're doing a, a variety of other things as as well. So, so um, uh, so maybe if we if we is focus on the on the vet lights vet life stuff if that's okay um can i just ask how, how things have been going and, and particularly in the last sort of couple of months with with um, everything that's going on in in the uk as well as the rest of the world sure well yeah since the coronavirus outbreak obviously it's had a massive impact globally and that's absolutely something that the veterinary profession in the uk has seen as well and um, and we are the calls that we get at VetLife and the emails that we get at VetLife and the contacts that we get for financial support or for professional mental health support across all of our services have reflected that too. Um, our service demand very much tends to reflect what's going on in the veterinary professions, um, nurses, vets, other people working in veterinary practices and in veterinary industry. And so we did see um, a small spike in contacts around the time of lockdown in the UK, which was obviously a very difficult transition for a lot of people and for our industry. Um, we've seen that settle down in terms of numbers. However, um, there's still a lot of sort of very difficult calls coming through and very difficult themes in terms of what people are experiencing. Um, we're very much here for that though and that's something I'd like to stress that we absolutely do have capacity to continue taking those calls and we're set up to do that. Um, we're quite lucky in terms of the impact on our service because our helpline has always been operated remotely. It's quite unusual as a helpline to operate it remotely and what I mean by that is because our volunteers are vets, veterinary nurses, other people from the veterinary industry from all around the UK who are still doing doing their veterinary roles, which has always been important to us that the people who volunteer with us understand our industry. So they've always done their work remotely for us. And so they've had secure ways of connecting to phone calls. They've had secure ways of connecting to emails. And that's been a priority for us for many years. So as a charity, although our office function was disrupted, our helpline was uninterrupted and our mental health services too. We're also still providing our full financial support service. And those things are really important to us that we've managed to keep those going. That's uh, that's fantastic. And it does sound like uh, so a small spike is, is better than, um, uh, than I suppose a, a massive spike. But I imagine that we're yeah. one of the few professions that um, have had to sort of continue working and continue doing doing um, uh, face-to-face stuff or, or even as you know, removed as you as you can be sort of for for that um but as in, have people sort of struggled with with part of that trying to do the job but but more sort of re- remotely or not having that same client contact yeah, absolutely. So the calls that we've had reflect very much what's gone on across the veterinary industry. So some people have had concerns about redundancy, concerns about furlough, um, concerns about 
being the people left in a practice when most of the other staff has been furloughed and they're doing primarily emergency work or then their workload is really increasing or they're doing very different rotors, perhaps very intense rotors. Um, also, a lot of contacts from people who maybe perhaps are, are managing some of those situations and are making the difficult decisions. Perhaps one of the most striking things about the contact pattern that we had was the number of student veterinary nurses and veterinary students who were in contact with us um, around the time of lockdown and subsequently in terms of their worries and concerns. Um, and that's been a really important theme for us as well. And has that been sort of centred around sort of aspects of graduation or, or what <clears throat> whether they will have, I suppose, like jobs to go to or what that will, will look like? Or has it just, again, been sort of a, a, across the board? It's been across the board. So graduation is certainly a theme, having jobs to go to. Um, financial insecurity is often a concern, I would say, particularly for student veterinary nurses. That's often a big challenge um, with a lot of the unpaid work placements they've had to do and sometimes greater financial insecurity within veterinary nursing as well. There's been other issues too, so students who are having to shield, perhaps facing quite extreme isolation if they were away at university and away from family and now shielding and completely alone. Um, there's been other concerns as well, so concerns around bereavement, concerns around concern for family members, um, worries about interruption to studies in terms of struggling with online learning because of insecure housing facilities or other things, um, and also concern around mental health, so people who were experiencing various levels of mental health support at university, whether that was from a supportive relationship with a personal tutor or with peers, or whether it was more formal counselling or mental health services, there have obviously been changes to the delivery of those which have not been possible for some students to continue participating in. So for example, people who are using mental health services um, privately in consultation and live in a shared house and now don't feel able to access those services by phone necessarily as easily, and they can't go out to take a private phone call. So there's been all kinds of different challenges that people have had. And that's why it's been important to us to continue providing both our phone and our email services because it gives people a bit more flexibility about how they contact us and whether something is private or not in a shared home. And has that been, say, something that um, you've discussed in your team of um, the, the people that take the calls um, that you know to discuss these sort of things? Because I imagine there's a lot that's going on that um, you know your you know things are changing sort of quite quickly daily, and also it's not as if anyone has a global pandemic. Um, you know, book to say, oh, well, you know, this is this is what normally happens in this scenario. Like everyone is kind of trying to make the best decisions sometimes on a 24 hour basis. So how have your have your team sort of managed to deal with that? And and, um, and I suppose have, have they been all right as well? Yeah, so you touch on something really important here that's been a priority for us right through. Um, one of our real, I suppose, mottos at VetLife is around supporting um, the people who volunteer with us and supporting the people who work with us as well, because if we can't look after each other, you know, we're not in a good place to look after other people. So that's been really important. Our office staff are incredibly flexible and adaptable and have done an amazing job at transitioning to home working and, you know, huge thanks to them for that. In terms of our volunteer team, that's been a big priority. Um, since before lockdown and um, since since when COVID started having a big impact on the veterinary industry in the UK. So um, we obviously had volunteers who perhaps needed to pause their volunteering for a time. And that was for a whole range of reasons um, to do with caring, to do with um, children at home, to do with um, work situations. So being the only people left in a practice who are now doing a lot greater workload. And that's always something that we have for our volunteers is a huge degree of flexibility because ultimately our volunteers are incredibly 
skilled and brilliant group of people and it's important for us to support them but we also started for the volunteers who were able to continue volunteering with us during this time we started um, regular bulletins um, which is something I recommend to people managing practice situations as well so regular information bulletins um, trying to answer questions, um, trying to address any changes and give explanation for them um, with clear information. And we also started um, regular social events for volunteers that are closed and just for volunteers. And those are three times a week to offer some kind of camaraderie and support for volunteers um, because they're experiencing the same things that the rest of the veterinary industry is experiencing. So that's been really important to us. Um, our volunteers also have regular group supervision and regular professional supervision from a mental health professional. So that's been carrying on as normal and that's really important and something we very much encourage. We also debrief um, every day to other volunteers when we pass over um, the duty and we do our handover. So there's a lot of support in place, but it's something that we constantly review because as you say, the situation's changing and there is this really dynamic context that we're all in and we need to make sure that our volunteers are supported in that too. So with your role with uh, with VetLife now, Rosie, and, and and you're doing this sort of like part-time, but uh, but uh, like two or three days a, a week, so you, so how have how have you found it in tr sort of trying to navigate vet life through this um, these ridiculously choppy waters? Yeah, so I suppose for me, my experience of being helpline manager at vet life, which currently is around three to four days, um, is is just that it's an immense privilege, and I think I'm really lucky to have a role in the veterinary industry that feels that way, um, because I am surrounded by a really amazing group of people. Um, obviously, the volunteers that we have are the helpline and they are an incredible group of people and their generosity and wanting to help others um, in a similar situation to them their peers um, who may have been through things that they've been through in the past who maybe they just want to support other people in the industry um, it's it's a real privilege to work with those people and I suppose the other aspect of what feels very rewarding and a privilege is the trust that our callers put in us and when I say callers I mean people who contact us by phone or by email because people trust us with an incredible amount of um, sometimes very difficult stuff, sometimes stuff that they've never spoken to somebody about before, sometimes worries from work that they were very worried about somebody else finding out about for some reason. And the amount of trust that callers put in us, I think, is a real driver to us to keep doing what we do and keep doing it to the very highest standard that we can. Um, because it is incredible having people put that amount of trust in you and the service that you provide. Rosie, have you been in contact with um, with other sort of helplines, so whether nationally or internationally, or, or within the, the veterinary field or other fields, to sort of talk about you know, what's what's happening with the with the global pandemic, and and if there's any way that you guys can all all help each other, or, or is that sort of a a, a taboo subject with with other helplines sort of um, assisting each other? Yeah, not at all. No, there are helpline partnerships and things like that. And there's places where people share information. Um, the International Association for Suicide Prevention, for example, has a helplines um, subgroup to it. Um, and so there's regular information sharing between global helplines across different fora. I think we were particularly, in some ways, um, fortunately placed in a horrible situation in that we do offer our service remotely and a lot of helplines weren't in that situation so most helplines operate from an office-based model where people go into an office and take calls and it was very difficult for some of them to transition and some haven't been able to transition to a remote model so other helplines are often facing challenges that we're not facing right now um, and we have in some cases in the past shared our expertise in terms of having offered a remote helpline for a long time some of the things that we've tried in the past that didn't work so well or some things that do 
work well for us um, and for our callers. But it's something that I think we're constantly aware of, the need to improve and the need to adapt to what callers need as well. It was only in 2014 that we introduced our email service, which might sound quite late, um, a long time after email started. But the reason for that was because we wanted to be sure that we could offer a totally confidential service where we also encrypted the caller's email address so we can't see people's email addresses when they contact us. And that's important to us because we want callers to feel certain that if they want to be anonymous, then they can be um, and we don't have to know who they are. And has VetLife sort of continued to increase the amount of uh, callers that you've had like year on year or is there is there a, is there a, a plateau? Yeah, so there was a big increase. So over five years from um, 2014 to 2018, inclusive of those years, um, we saw around about a nine to tenfold increase in our calls. But that wasn't completely accidental. Um, It was because we were very much trying to make sure that people knew about us so they could contact us. That's plateaued off a little there's been a gradual increase since so last year um we had just over 3100 calls in the year before we'd had just over 2800 so it's a much slower increase but it's around eight to ten calls a day um whereas in 2014 and 2013 you'd be looking at sort of one call a day so it's very different but we've done that in um in a way that we we very much had capacity for um so we've increased our numbers of volunteers a lot um we've increased our training we've increased our supervision so it's definitely something we can handle and I suppose the message I always want to give to people if they're thinking about contacting us and they're a veterinary professional in the UK is please do contact us and we'd love to hear from you and I suppose one of the reflections I have from still being a volunteer who takes calls as well as working um, within um, the vet life and managing the helpline is that very often people call us and they say oh I'm sorry for bothering you it's not very serious I don't want to take up your time I know you've got more important people and then they tell us something that's um, big and life-changing you know and it's having a really big impact on them and I guess sometimes for us we wish that people felt able to call us before it got so bad as well um that you know people could just call us when they're having a bad day and they need someone to chat to that's absolutely fine and we encourage that and we have the capacity to take those calls as well and, that, and that's great and thank you and, and uh, obviously all your all your callers for uh, and volunteers for for um uh, for being there that's it's really sort of um, unbelievably fantastic and particularly at this at this time and do you, do you think that uh, the people are finding it difficult to um uh, i suppose like sort out their mental health or do the things that they used to do to make themselves um uh, good in in that regard <clears throat> and i suppose that touching on for that did you uh, did you have a place to run the the london marathon this year yeah so i did have a place to run the london marathon this year um and running is one of the things I like to do for my mental health, as you allude to. Um, and yeah, I had a place. I had a place to run other races as well. And in the scheme of things now, it seems like a very minor thing to to not be able to do those things. But it, it raises an important point that some of the things that we all do to manage our mental health are not possible or are more difficult right now, and particularly around social contact. Um, and this is particularly important for certain people in our profession who maybe are, are living alone or who are caring for people or have really big stresses related to what's going on. I suppose as well for people with severe and enduring mental health problems or with um, who are experiencing experiencing poor mental health or poor physical health, there's massive challenges as well. So for some people with mental health conditions, the exact things they've been told to do to manage their conditions um, by clinicians, by professionals, may be things that directly now contradict public health advice. So for example, um, 
one of the very stereotyped examples people have used is around OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and this has been quite misrepresented in some of the media, but certainly people with obsessive compulsive disorder, you know, may well have been told not to repeatedly check things. They may have been taught that they need to not repeatedly do rituals if those involve cleanliness or hand washing, or if then those involve worries about contamination and touching things, which can be parts of OCD for some people who experience OCD. And of course, all of that advice is now is now contradicted by public health advice. So it may be a real challenge for some people who have experienced that. Likewise, people who've experienced depression or social anxiety may have been really encouraged to go out into public spaces and to spend time interacting with other people. And now, of course, you know, we're restricted from what we can do there. Um, other people with um, schizophrenia or other disorders um, may have been really discouraged from isolating and locking themselves down at home, which is sometimes a um, associated with being a feature of illness and really encouraged not to do that and of course now that's what we're being told to do so there's this real dichotomy between what people have previously been told to do and what people are now having to do and that is posing a challenge for mental health particularly in a context where although mental health services are trying very hard in many cases to still be available they are inevitably less available where, than they were whether that's due to staff shortages whether it's due to um factors on both sides, difficulties with internet connections, difficulties with having a private space to speak, um, or whether it's due to other things as well. When you were talking about the resources that mental health um, were, were sort of struggling to deliver and also the, some of the issues that people have, and specifically the government restrictions have made it difficult for people to, um, to I suppose, get their get the help or 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 do the things that they they should do i suppose do, do you think that the this the next phase so the transition phase is is not going to really be much much better because because i suppose that although we think that there's uh you know some improvement is is better actually this this is going to go on for for a while i think most of most of us all agree that you know nor normality is is not going to be normal until, you know, maybe we have a, a vaccine or, or you, know, you know, and however long that would take. So, do you, do you think this, you know, these things are going to continue to build up, or, or hopefully that people, um, resources will go to to address particularly certain aspects of, of mental health. Yeah, I think it will be really interesting to see what happens in terms of mental health resources. Um, so something resourcing across the mental health sector. So, you know, in charities that have aspects of mental health work in what they do, like VetLife um, or in mental health services and elsewhere. So one of the things that many charities are experiencing is a combination of a drop in income and a drop in um, other sources of um, sort of donor income, but a drop in other sources of charity income as well, which may involve um, some investment income that would typically be something from charities or fundraising or other things as well. And so there's a drop in that and there's also um, potentially an increase in demand. And that's something I suppose that we're very aware of. Um, but at the moment we're managing, but it is something that I think is going to affect across the sector. And so mental health resourcing is going to be really important. There's also concern, I think, more broadly in mental health that as well as people with pre-existing mental health conditions and their ongoing need and, and that needing to be prioritised, that there may be people who haven't experienced mental health difficulties before or have but a long time ago who experienced mental health difficulties in light of some of the things that have been happening. And that may be related to 
complex bereavement. It may be related to a type of post-traumatic stress disorder if they've experienced COVID perhaps and been in intensive care. Um, so it's very common for people who've experienced critical illness and periods in intensive care to need a lot of mental health support um, when they come through that because it's an incredibly difficult experience. And so there's all these sort of concerns as well. And also for people who've been working in high-risk situations during the pandemic, um, there's concern around what mental health support they will need too. Um, and I think it's really important that we do consider all of that, including for vets in our industry who've been in in roles that are at the front line of this and have been working in very high stress situations under a lot of pressure without necessarily the breaks that they might um, usually take. Um, and it may have an effect on their mental health too. And so it's important that we consider and we're there for those people as well. Well, thank you uh, very, very much for for that. Maybe we'll um, we'll sort of move on a, a little if that if that's all right, and uh, and maybe chat a bit about. Um, so last time you were on, we, we we spoke about your your PhD, and maybe if you wouldn't mind uh, refreshing the uh, um, the listeners what what your PhD was on, and and um, we 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 spoke a bit about the results, but but um, you were a bit reluctant to share them just because things hadn't been um, um, published yet. Yeah, that's right. Um, so my PhD was the veterinary transition study, which investigated the transition from veterinary student to practicing veterinary surgeon. And it was what's called a prospective cohort study. So it followed people from final year, the same people through their first couple of years in practice. And it did a number of interview pickups with them. And one of the unusual things about the study was that it was quite a large qualitative cohort study. Um, it's quite unusual in qualitative research to be able to do that, to actually do multiple pickups with the same people. And it's quite a strong kind of study design in terms of understanding people going through a period of transition or change. The reason um, we un undertook the study and the reason that I decided that this was a real priority that I wanted to spend quite a few years doing was because we were aware that the transition to practice was a really challenging time in veterinary careers. And I suppose for me, sometimes when you do quantitative research around it, it's often quite influenced by researchers um, preconceived ideas about what might be difficult to transition. And I wanted to understand what actually made a difference for people. Um, so it was a great um, opportunity to be able to do a study like this. But I think the thing reflecting back on it, having finished it now, was how amazing the participants were in terms of staying in the study during it. So the study had a really high retention rate, um, which hopefully means that the data is more useful now to the profession. So before I say anything about it, just a massive thanks to those people who took part. Everything in the study is completely anonymized, so you wouldn't be able to tell who any of those people are. However, those people know who they are, and thank you. And um, and so you see that's all, all wrapped up since the first couple of years that you you, um, you looked at the transition. So so were there were there themes that that came from that that um, that people uh, had difficulties with going from a, a student to a um, into the profession. Yeah, so the study looked at three things primarily. It looked at people's experiences of mental health, their experiences of support, and the development of what I call professional identity during transition. So mental health, their experience of support, and the development of professional identity. I suppose there was a number of big themes that came out of it. Um, just to sort of describe a few of them, um, 
the importance of informal support was a big one in terms of um, people's use of support. So even when a lot of formal support structures were in place, and by formal support, I might mean something delivered by the university or delivered by the practice or delivered by a professional mental health service. Um, many participants in the study favoured informal support and some of that was due to a perception that they might be penalised for accessing formal support services. So I think there's an important message there for um, people who design and create formal support services about how do we ensure that people feel safe to use them. But also knowing that that informal support is important, so from family, friends um, and sometimes from peers, um, how we can really support people to still have that during that time of transition and how we can enable those very useful informal supports to still happen. Um, another finding um, which was particularly striking was that those who experienced greatest difficulty at transition, particularly around mental health, um, perhaps even um, suicidal feelings um, after they got out into practice, were not the people who'd experienced or reported mental health um, difficulties while at vet school. And I think this is something that is very important for our industry to reflect on. Um, I sometimes, you know, um, get people at conferences or something, if I've been talking about mental health, saying, well, shouldn't we screen people out? Um, there's lots of literature about why that is not a good idea and why it's not an ethical idea as well. I'm trying to screen out mental health difficulties and it's not Equality Act compliant. But there's also an important issue that people who experience mental health difficulties at vet school in many cases had a very positive transition to practice and went on to be what might be considered very successful in practice. Um, and people who struggled a lot more had often not experienced any mental health difficulties prior to their experience of transition. And so that's important as well to understand what made the difference there for people so that we can make sure that we're supporting people at the time that they need it. And hopefully that we could help prevent some of those mental health difficulties as well, where they experience them related to their experience of transition. Another finding was to do with people's experience of transition and induction in the profession. And I'm sighing because I'm, it, it kind of still makes me sad as a vet who's been out and qualified for a while that the, the finding here makes me sad because a lot of people's experience, not everybody, but a lot of people, their experience involve feelings of being let down and also a mismatch between the clinical responsibility that they were expected to take on and the level of experience that they had. So what you might call a baptism by fire, those kinds of things. Um, and that was disappointing, I suppose. Um, I'd hoped that perhaps we would find something different, but that very much was a common experience. Not every participant, but some. We also found that veterinary identity was really important. Um, so this idea of who you are as a professional, what it means to you to be a professional, what your values are and how you see yourself within veterinary culture. Um, one of the things that was very interesting to me when um, I was in terms of having done sequential interviews with people was the point at which they felt they were a vet. So I think I'd assumed before the study that people would feel they were a vet at maybe the time they graduated or the time they started their first job or the time they signed the Royal College Register or one of those other big kind of landmark moments. And actually that wasn't the case and it almost universally wasn't the case across the participants. When people actually felt they, was a, they were a vet or a real vet um, was a time when they felt they could do certain key procedures, usually quite difficult surgical procedures um, um, in some um, areas of work, difficult medical cases 
in what they perceived as a completely unsupported way. So when they could function totally alone, only then did they feel that they were a real vet now. And I suppose that that raises a worrying question for the profession of, of why does being a real vet mean operating without support? Um, why does it mean doing things totally alone? And is this really what um, you know what we want to encourage people to aspire to which which kind of partly leads me on to one of the other things that was interesting about cultural scripting um, which is an idea from social science research that sometimes in life we follow identity paths that are already sort of set out for us um, and so one of the things that interests me in terms of interventions is how do we set out identity paths for people becoming a vet um, that perhaps lead to a more healthy place? Because one of the aspects of veterinary culture that really came through in the study was of working unsupported, working alone, um, and some other things that really aren't necessarily conducive to well-being and perhaps could influence poor well-being for some people. So how do we set out role models and paths for people that are more positive for their health as well? Wow, um, it's uh, quite a quite a lot to uh, to digest, actually, Rosie, in, in, uh, in a in a small um, uh, in, a, in a small sort of uh, few few minutes. That, that's uh, that's pretty impressive. Um, all, all of the, all of those things that, you, that you've um, identified. So, I suppose if you're touching on the last point first, maybe that with the cultural scripting. So, uh, is there anyone that's sort of doing work on this in the in the veterinary field to try and sort of? Um, I, I suppose are, are you trying to say um, uh, that if you um, I don't know, watch TV and you want to be a surgeon and you look at, or sorry, a medical person and you want to be house, then um, then you follow in that footpath and you're going to turn into that type of, of, of doctor. Is that is that the idea? So in terms of acculturation and how people become vets, there are a number of other people who've done some really great research about how people develop identity and veterinary identity as well, although the identity literature in medicine is broader than it is in veterinary. I suppose the interesting thing for me there is that it isn't just about, um, so there's multiple things that affect how people decide what they think a good vet is. And one of the really important things that came up in my study and has come up in previous research, notably by Hannah Perrin, who did an amazing PhD that looked a lot at veterinary identity, um, is around the importance of EMS in that. Um, so the role that the Royal College described for EMS or that universities described for EMS um, was actually not the role that necessarily the EMS performed for people. EMS was very important in people's idea of what it was to be a real vet or a good vet and a number of aspects of professionalism that we think we might influence with teaching at university were actually much more influenced by EMS and so I think there's a real consideration for us there as a profession, um, for educators, for regulators about um, what we need to do about that if we want to influence anything there. Um, there were also other issues. So role modeling was very important. And I suppose there it's important to consider which role models are available um, in educational contexts um, and the importance of those people being supported. Um, so if people who um, are your role models have poor well-being because they're not in good working environments, that can really impact student well-being as well. So that's important to be aware of. Do you, do you think this has uh, stayed, stayed the same, that um, people have looked at EMS in, in that regard for a long time? So, so, and partly is that because those people are, inverted commas, doing the job, whereas at university you're um, seen to be in roles of, of education, no matter if, there's, if, if there are clinical facilities within that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting because a lot of the role models that people had were within educational environments, so um, specialist clinical environments particularly. Um, but yeah, there was something very important about EMS um, in terms of how it shaped people's idea about being a real vet um, and sometimes a disconnect between their experience of EMS and their experience of teaching, sometimes also around the usefulness of EMS and how they were respected and treated and that was very variable. Um, there were particular, um, I suppose, issues there around diversity um, and around the way that people are the way that people experience EMS and are treated that's um that's all, all very interesting probably a, a separate discussion for for about um, I suppose a, a whole conference on on that um and with with the the support uh, specifically and you said that, that any kind of informal support was was as good or as beneficial was there a, uh, I suppose, was support sort of linked to the individual, or or support more individually um, focused, or other, were there were there particular themes within that, or is is support quite a individualistic thing? Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, so the way I considered support in the study was using a, a model of social support, which is talked about a lot in the literature. So that comprises both emotional and instrumental support. So instrumental support you might consider to be more practical. The transition to practice was characterized by a deficit of both. So a deficit of both emotional support and instrumental support for some participants, not for all. And that's important because there were a few people in the study who had very, very good experiences of transition, were very well supported. And as a result, um, you know, that had a very positive impact on their med mental health around that time. And so some of the learning from this study has been very much about, well, what do we take from this that we can actually apply? And so a number of the recommendations that I've made have been based on what went well for people, what actually worked, because there are things that you absolutely can do in practice that don't necessarily have to cost a huge amount of money that make a massive difference to people's experience of transition. And what, um, what were they? Sorry, what, another, what, what do you think are the things that people can, can do to, to help that? So I've made a number of recommendations um, for um, the profession and I've made it sort of in a series of areas. So some of the recommendations are for universities, some are for veterinary employers, some are for the veterinary surgeons themselves, and some are for regulators as well. Um, in terms of employers um, for new graduates, I would say really think about onboarding and induction. So those are terms that um, people may not have come across, but they're very much part of the management literature and part of the employment literature. Um, so it's about staff in a role. Um, deficits in onboarding and induction were common um, and, and make a big difference to people's experience of work. One of the biggest ways that this was seen in the study was very premature expectations around soul on call. Um, there were people who still were expected to do soul on call within their first week of work, um, some people within their first few days of work. Um, so having never previously worked as an independent veterinary surgeon, they were expected to do soul on call. And, and there is no reason why our profession still needs to do that. Um, people who had a, a better period of transition in terms of a preparatory period before soul on call um, and a stepwise process towards soul on call with some supported on call um, experienced that much better. So yet everybody got through it and everybody learned through the process, but 
you don't have to suffer as much as some people did during this study. And I think that's a big message to employers that the time at which you consider sole on call to be appropriate um, is really important. And if you're thinking that it's appropriate within the first few weeks, even the first month, I would say really seriously have a think about that. Um, another area was the importance of shadowing, particularly for people in ambulatory practice. So there were examples in the study of people hoping for a period of shadowing and trying to negotiate it. And then they described being thrown the car keys and told, well, we pay you now, off you go, you're on your own. And that isn't what any of us hope for, for somebody's first experience of work um, in our industry. If we want to retain new graduates and we want them to have a positive experience of transition and to feel that they're growing in confidence and competence, a period of shadowing can be incredibly valuable. And it can be valuable to the practice as well in terms of client bonding, in terms of getting to introduce the new person. And absolutely, there was great practice as well. And that was one of the real joys of this study, hearing about how people's experiences of really supported transition had helped them to fly in their early career as veterinary surgeons and it was brilliant to hear that some practices are doing that and to understand the ways that they did that and I think we can all potentially learn from them through this study. Rosie do you think that with because a number of percentage I think it's up to 70 percent are now sort of uh, corporate owned sort of veterinary practices um, in in broad terms do you, do you think that they're um, better sort of set up for that that induction um, and on onboarding, did, did were the themes that actually they're they're kind of getting certain aspects of that of that right? Um, obviously, I'm obviously naming names, but, but just just wondering, just out of interest, whether um, you know some or was a, across the board that some did and some didn't, and that even you know um, two or three vet practices were um, uh, were doing a good job of this. So my experience of this through this study and um, from the data very much is that it was incredibly variable. Um, so it wouldn't be right to say that graduate programs are always more supportive than independent practice that don't have a graduate program, maybe a small two or three vet practice. That definitely wasn't the case. Um, some very small um, veterinary practices without big management resource um, were doing a better job of induction um, for the individuals that experienced that. However, there were cases of people having very good inductions within graduate schemes. And so it really does vary across the industry. And I think that variability is something that our industry maybe needs to reflect on. Why is it that individuals are having such different experiences of a transition to do job that is, is relatively similar across our industry among the different fields that people work in. So why is there such a huge variability? Um, so when you look across to other professions, which is sometimes useful to do at this point, for example, for medicine, um, there isn't such an enormous variability in terms of the structure of training um, that doesn't exist. And so, you know, this flexibility can sometimes be an advantage in veterinary training, but it isn't for everybody. And certainly people who were in quite unsupported ex environments didn't experience that. Um, it was partly to do with um, employers. But one of the things that was a striking feature of when things went wrong were staffing difficulties. So I suppose um, perhaps a reflection for employers would be, please be aware just how big the impact of staffing difficulties has on new graduates. Um, so um, so some new graduates would be expected to cover significant absence of experienced practitioners in ways that weren't going to be feasible or possible or ever going to be successful. Um, but also when people's trainers or mentors left, there were often gaps that somehow there wasn't a sense of oversight that the person who's primarily been helping this person to transition has suddenly gone and no one has taken over that role. Um, and so understanding that continuity that people need. And again, when you contrast with medicine, um, you would have a named 
consultant through your training um, as a junior doctor for almost all of the time for a number of years after graduation, potentially up to 10. Um, and that just doesn't happen in VET a lot of the time. And so it's considering, well, what can we learn from other industries that does work? And yep, there are difficulties in other industries too. So what do we want to take from them that we know works? Um, and one of those things potentially is about things like um, formative assessment on the job, like real support, like named people that somebody can go to and meaningful support as well. So there was often a mismatch between what a practice thought they were offering or describing in terms of support and what somebody felt that they needed and so understanding how to communicate those needs as well. well I, I suppose that it's always going to be the way that there's going to be a variability isn't there in, the, in, in what, what people can actually sort of deliver even the, even if what's are ideal sort of independent or, or sort of corporate practices so I suppose it's, um, it's sad but but uh, but under, understanding sort of uh, about that. Um, so you in the understanding, um, there's one other thing that's probably worth mentioning, which is that sometimes for some individuals, even when on paper a practice was doing, you know, amazing things in terms of support, for some individuals, they were never going to utilize that support to its fullest extent because of what they thought it meant to be a vet. So for some people, their sense of veterinary identity and their acculturization into vet prohibited them from accessing support that was available. And I think that's important for employers too, because just building the support and expecting that people will automatically access it didn't always work. And so what are the considerations there? How do we also make sure that we're um, offering people ways to develop identity that involves accessing support or making sure that support is definitely part of somebody's role and it's not an optional extra that they reach out to? Yeah, that's, a, that's a good point because yeah, I suppose you can have um, all the signposts and, uh, and and everything sort of there on the on the table as it, as it were, but people still have to use it and 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 obviously we're dealing with um uh you know very uh, intelligent or educated people that uh, that probably think second guess what that means to maybe use that and maybe they just shouldn't and and uh, and get on with it and ask for help when when it's required yeah absolutely and that was the case at universities as well so one of the striking things um, in doing this study was that a number of people who were experiencing quite serious mental health problems hadn't disclosed those within university context at all. Um, and the reason to do with that was often due to perception of concerns around fitness to study or fitness to practice, that there would be a perception that disclosing mental health issues or accessing formal support that was very much available to them and not at a cost would have a detrimental impact on their careers. So I think there's perhaps something for universities and as well as employers to consider about if we build these formal supports, how do we help people to trust that this won't have a detrimental impact? So how do we build in confidentiality safeguards? How do we explain in what circumstances confidentiality may be breached if there was a um, a concern about risk to safety, those kinds of things. And how do we communicate that? Because there are the people who need support potentially and could benefit from it who aren't feeling able to use it because they're frightened. Um, so how do we help them to, to feel able to access that that's available to them? So Rosie, you said you had a, a good number of uh, people that you followed in, in this cohort. And can, can I ask like, what roughly percentage of people um, left the profession in that time that you followed them? Yeah, so um, the follow-up that I did was 18 months to two years um, following graduation. Nobody from the study at that point had left the profession. However, a number of people were considering it and a number of people had had very difficult experiences of transition that definitely had influenced those kind of decisions. That was how they described it. 
one of the things I would like to do if I can get the research funding for it is to pick up with everybody who was involved with the study um, again because now we're at the point um, where there are a number of years following graduation and I anticipate sadly that a number of them will have left the profession so I think potentially you know this is a, a group of people who are um, who've said that they're um, prepared to take part in research on this topic and it would be a good opportunity to to understand what factors are affecting people leaving the profession because obviously that's a concern to lots of us in the profession why is it that um, people who've invested so much of their life um, of their identity, of their time, of their money, um, end up not necessarily staying in the profession for very long. And how can we understand if some of those people did want to, how can we support them to stay or how can we support them to diversify in careers in ways that are fulfilling and meaningful for them? So I think that's potentially um, a piece of work that I would really like to be able to do to pick up with people again now. And uh, is there is there any other sort of aspect of um, of that research that you want to want to follow up as well, or, or are you are you um, trying to uh, to follow up certain aspects of those of these um, I suppose three themes that you you found out, or are you are you changing your your tact a bit and uh, or tack a bit sorry and and um, looking into different horizons. Yeah, very much so. Um, it's a huge amount of work that I think potentially could be done following this so one of the things I would like to do um, goes back to what I was mentioning about cultural scripts actually and this is a very difficult and controversial area but I think it's particularly important so around the way that we talk about suicide in the veterinary profession and the way that we talk about mental health um, there was indication from some of the data in this study that potentially the way we talk about things might not be helpful um, and the way we talk about things could be making things worse for some people um, and what I mean by that is some people had developed a perception that being part of the veterinary industry meant that it was inevitable that their mental health would become poor and it was perhaps inevitable that some of them would die by suicide. And that's an incredibly worrying thing from a mental health perspective because an assumption of inevitability um, increases somebody's risk um, because then they don't necessarily take steps that would be protective for them. So what is it in the way that we talk about mental health and the way we talk about suicide in our industry that has left people with a perception of inevitability? Because that absolutely isn't the case. Those things aren't inevitable from working in our industry so it's important that we understand how it is that we can still talk about those things because it's very important that we do in a way that is safe for people. Um, another thing that I was interested in researching following this was around the impact of bereavement by suicide on people in our industry and how that shapes those ideas too. Also, evaluating the support schemes that we currently have. So one of the striking things in this study was people's awareness of support very often was very good. They were aware of numerous supports available to them and they were fairly determined not to use them. Um, and that wasn't the case for everybody. There were people who did use supports and found them helpful or not helpful. But there was a group of people who felt that they couldn't use them. So I suppose for me, that raises questions about how we evaluate what works. Because for me, all of this research, it isn't about kind of peering at the veterinary profession and saying, oh, you know, there's difficulties here. It's actually about very practically, how do we translate this into interventions and ways to support people that actually make a difference to them and work for them and feel safe for them and that they can put trust in. And employers as well, um, ways that actually make economic sense for them in terms of knowing that a support intervention potentially does have an evidence base behind it. So us evaluating those supports that we have at universities and evaluating supports that we're putting in place in practice. As well as that. Oh, sorry. Do you think that when you're looking at these things, when you're looking at, at, at that aspect, 
that things are going to change. So when you when when you kind of nail it down that you think these things are going to help but you're looking at the cohort that has two three five years and maybe there's different issues that are going to crop up um for, for the for the next sort of cohort or the next and next group and it how do we how do we keep that support i suppose relevant to um to the who we're who we're trying to target that to rather than just sort of generally this is going to help every everybody in our profession from a new graduate to someone who's been doing it sort of 30 40 years absolutely it's a really good question um, and it's one of the challenges in mental health research particularly when you're trying novel interventions and um, that often they're quite um, context dependent so they may relate to technologies um, that move on very quickly and by the time you've evaluated them things have moved on to the point where people don't use that anymore um, i think for this research i'm um, certainly the the feedback I've had from talking with a number of practitioners in a lot of detail about the findings is that these are things that have been present in the veterinary profession perhaps for a very long time, as, as many as 20 years ago and a lot more, um, and that they there are a number of factors or features of it that are very consistent. So if perhaps we targeted those for intervention, things perhaps around responsibility experience mismatch, um, things about induction, things about shadowing, um, things in terms of university about people feeling safe to access support and feeling it won't cause harm or detriment to their career. Um, those things are consistent over time. And yes, it's important we listen to the novel challenges as well and that we're very flexible in how we provide that support. And I think what's really important there is about listening to people with lived experience of difficulties and involving them in developing projects. And this is very much something that was behind the kind of philosophy of this study in terms of trying to hear the experiences of people and trying to understand them in the context that they're in. And so my advice to people trying to set up support schemes would be very much involve the people who you're hoping to use them, both in their development and in designing the evaluation of those as well. The extra point I was going to make um, relates slightly to this, um, which was I feel quite strongly after doing this study that we need further research on gender discrimination and sexual harassment in veterinary study and practice. Um, so there were a number of important features um, of gender and of, and of discrimination, um, particularly around aspects of diversity in this study that I think um, were very much not fully explored by this study and really do need further exploration. So, um, for example, some of the diversity issues in this study would be really, really important when considering how to develop supports. Um, because if you have a very narrow um, framework when you're developing a support, um, it may not be suitable for everybody in the industry, particularly people who may really need it at a time of transition. So it's important that we do consider those aspects and how they affect what we currently have as well. Well, thank you, thank you very much. I think that's um, uh, there's, there's certainly a, a, a lot to uh, to consider with within um, everything that you've that you've said. And so, are you, are you picking up certain aspects of these, or are these all? Because um, that sounds kind of like a I don't know a career's worth of, of work that you've uh, you've just spoken about, and you've already got a, a job. So I, I'm a bit concerned how you're going to fit all this in. Yeah. So um, one of the there's a couple of priorities for me at the moment. Um, one is about um, developing research, specifically um, looking at 
um, preventing um, veterinary suicide, so helping people who are perhaps at very high risk um, and uh, developing um, some work on that at the moment um, around trying to protect people who may be at high risk um, when they're working in practice. Um, I'm also interested in understanding very much around interventions and something called implementation science. So how do we get from the point of having some research findings to things that actually help people? And so I suppose there is a real synergy there in terms of the different roles that I have. Um, because it's very much thinking about, well, what works for people and how can we help what we have to work even better? There's also something interesting about when things do go well for people and there were people in this study who things went really well for, how do we identify those protective factors that those people had, whether it was to do with their workplace environment, whether it was to do with support that they'd had, um, whether it was to do with other things and how do we share those things that we know work for some people and really help them at transition? How do we share those around other people as well? Would, would those be the, the people that we need to use as role models for the future or is that is that too simplistic? Yeah, so it's not necessarily around role modelling because it wasn't necessarily features of the individual. Um, so it wasn't that you had what some people might describe as particularly resilient individuals who then experienced no difficulty. Actually, the people who'd experienced difficulty at vet school were sometimes the best prepared for difficulties in practice. And that we could talk about why for another hour. Um, but I think as well, a lot of it was to do with experiences of support, experiences of good induction, good supervision, good mentoring, um, really good training opportunities, um, and also the importance of relationships. So relationships with mentors, with supervisors. So prioritizing those things that we've identified works aren't necessarily um, attached to the individual, but you can take things from individual stories and experiences and develop those to make them more widely available. And, uh, and do, you, do you think that, um, is, is your place of the marathon going to go into, are they postponed it to October or is it going to be next year now or is it still unknown? Yeah, so the London Marathon's currently being postponed to October. Um, I suppose a lot of us are wondering, things have changed a lot in the last few months um, in running and in sport as well as in um, the veterinary industry. So a lot of us are wondering if actually the mass race will be postponed until a time next year. Um, I would like to take part in it. Um, running marathons is a big part of what I do for my own well-being. Um, and I also like the opportunity to fundraise for helplines and to support um, the work of charity. So um, I'm hopeful I will get to do it at some point, but I'm not sure when I will be back um, on the mall finishing that. <laughs> Well, if you if you do manage to get back, it would be good to uh, to continue this sort of line of, of conversation for, for for sure in the London Marathon, or or we could do it um, or we could do it re remotely. Um, but uh, are you are you still managing to get out for some runs about where you where you live? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm lucky. I've been able to um, get out running a bit in Edinburgh where I live. Unfortunately, um, workplace hazard. I got bitten by a dog a few weeks ago, and so I can't currently run. But I'm hoping to be able to get back. To to it. I've got a rather enormous dog bite on my leg currently, but I'm hoping that will settle down and I can get back out soon. Not good, not good. Um, yeah, definitely a, a, a um, an issue that I'm sure we we uh, all face sadly from from time to time. Um, thank you so much, uh, Rosie, and uh, thank you for your time. Would you mind just plugging the um, how to search for vet life or the or how to get in contact? 
Oh, thank you for the opportunity to do that, Dom. So yeah, for people who want to know more about VetLife, the website is www.vetlife.org.uk. And if anyone needs support right now, you can either go through the website to send us an email. The email service is delivered via the website, so go on there and the instructions are there. Or you can call us on our helpline number, which is 0303. 040-2551 and that's 24 hours a day every day of the year just like our helpline service just like our email services thank you again so much rosier and uh, I, I look forward to uh, to managing to catch up with you hopefully um in in different times where we can uh, um uh, socialize and things like that so so thank you very much again and thank you for for uh, for, for listening so don't forget to hit that subscribe button and um, on your generic fruit based device and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast so if you could leave us a review five stars would be great on apple podcast acast or wherever you find this um podcast and tell your friends Fit friends or, or anyone i'm sure they will be interested to to hear um today's sort of topic and so we'll, we'll place any show notes on the rbc pages so if you just type in rbc clinical podcast into your search engine of choice it should be top of the tree so if you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast please get in touch you can either email dbarfield at rbc.ac.uk or you can tweet at don barfield until next time bye bye <laughs>